Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Four Jack Podcast. On today's episode, we have Golf Channel's very own Tom Abbott. We discuss everything from the PGA, LPGA, Ryder Cup, his time spent traveling the world doing Big Break, and even how he got to the Golf Channel in the first place. This is a super fun interview that we hope you all enjoy. So sit back and enjoy the show. Cheers. Welcome to the Four Jack Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Four Jack Podcast brought to you by our friends over at Jackson Labs. Back in it today, enjoying the summer weather, not playing any golf today, which is fine with me to be fair because Tom and I have just been pegging it up all over the city. Time to give the body a break and actually just chat about some golf today, some meaningful golf. But before we get to our guest, let's just say hello to the fellas as usual. Parks, what's up? Hey guys, yeah, you guys have been busy, man. I haven't been getting any invites to play golf, although I'm 12 to 14 hours away, so that's probably standard issue. But I like the content stuff that's been going on. I've been fortunate to be out on the golf course here a little bit. We started kicking off our segment with flight scope, so that's fun. Starting to utilize the equipment and get to know the product really well. And man, it's just, I hope it's going to do wonders for my golf game, aside from my putting, but uh, here's hoping. But yeah, I don't know if the flight scope is going to work on your putting there, Parks. <laughs> Excited for. What's that? Can you tell how? Like, can you use a putter and will it tell you how far you're hitting your putts? I don't know, man. I I haven't even I haven't even gone down that road yet, but uh, I guess it's possible. I think the Sam Putt Lab might be the next thing that we need to pick up for you, Parks. But next up, Tombo, what's happening? Uh, not too much, bud. Yeah, it's it's wild being on the other side of a computer from you. We have grown quite accustomed to being me always on the left. But uh, yeah, if we had a flight scope, I'd be out there tonight too, right? That's the only thing keeping me from being out there today. So yeah, excited to be here with our next guest. Should be interesting. Maybe learn a little bit about uh, yeah, being what being a golf analyst and commentator and someone with a big brand like golf channel and lpga is like so yeah excited to learn some things yeah absolutely and that being said our guest today is big break host pga and lpga correspondent and golf channel analyst mr tom abbott how are you i'm very well thank you very much for having me on it's uh it's great to talk to you boys i'm very kind of disappointed that you don't have me in your intro Actually, when I was listening the other day, I thought I was waiting for my call in there or some sort of big break line that never came. <laughs> well, you did have the good call there. We should actually get the one of 2014 at Glen Eagles. That was such a legendary call. That was call. huge. Yeah, for sure. I need to get this out of the way early because Cody brought it to my attention earlier. Were you there when Chichi Rodriguez got hit in the nuts? <laughs> yeah, it was there. Actually. <laughs> oh, wow. That is the call. Sure. It was a fantastic <laughs> moment, actually. Chichi is such a character. And um, I don't even know whether it aired, but after it hit anything, after it hit him, he was like, oh, I didn't know there was anything still there. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that was hilarious. That was really funny. Yeah. We had a good day that day with Chichi. He is, um, he's one of a kind. He's a character. Hey, what a crazy person. You, you've been around some pretty interesting people on the golf course and had the opportunity to interview some pretty interesting characters and some crazy, crazy things. I, I need to know, 
and again, maybe we'll just get this out of the way. How is working with Melanie Collins? She is absolutely stunning. She's a big hockey fan. Do yeah. You guys know that? Yeah. yeah. She's a big guy. I think she's dated a few hockey players in her, in her time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, she's a massive hockey fan. No, Melanie's hilarious. We ha- we still have a, a great time. We texted. I texted her the other day. Actually. Um, we yeah, we had a, we had a lot of fun working together. And uh, she always. I remember one thing. She always calls hair salad, and you got to have a really good salad. Time. I'd never heard that before. That might be like a hockey thing. Right? It's a hockey and, thing. Uh, there's that hockey thing. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. So always that I learned that from uh, Melanie Collins that. And I didn't have very good salad. I don't think I still, I don't have very good salad now. It's always, um, <laughs> but, I'm not sure uh, if that's something you want to be learning. Yeah, it's always a lettuce. Okay. It's a good lettuce or a good salad. But yeah, if you ever have an, yeah, uh, a hankering yeah. to cross over. And I think, I think uh, that that's kind of a prerequisite if you're going to go out and learn. I've been working but, on my uh, salad actually too, to be quite yeah. honest. This COVID <laughs> thing is like giving me the opportunity to be like, let's test the salad. Experience out. some things. We're still keeping it under wraps because yeah, as you get a little older, you lose a couple hairs, but it's like, Maybe this is my last chance, right? <laughs> I love how that's the approach that you take during the pandemic. Instead of beefing up like Bryson, you go for, hey, let's see if we can grow a rat tail. Yikes. Let's just grow, bring in the mullet back, right? Nostalgia is a big thing. And uh, my friend Greggy, boy, boy, Neil Craft, he has brought the mullet back in big fashion right now. So I'm <laughs> pulling a little inspiration there. All right, let's let's change gears a bit here from Tom Jackson's hair to Tom Abbott's story. Let's talk about what got you into golf and maybe who introduced you to the game take us all the way back and take us on that journey yeah i asked my dad about this recently and he said that i literally just asked him one day when i was about 10 years old uh, i said to him i i want to start playing golf and uh which seems a bit bizarre isn't it for a 10 year old to say that but um but yeah so that's kind of how i got into the game my dad plays a little bit i mean he's not a great player but he's really sort of loves the game and and he still plays quite a bit and it's it's good for you you know it's good for your health to get out and walk and play golf so um so he he played and then actually my uh where i grew up where my parents still live their neighbors had a son who was a similar age to me and um adam g is his name g double e and Adam and I have obviously been friends for a very long time. And, and so we took up the game at the same time when we were about 10 years old. And uh, Adam went on to uh, great things. Uh, he played on the, on the tour. I think he was a number one ranked amateur for a little bit. And he um, lost in the final of the British amateur. So he was, you know, he still oh, wow. is a very good player. He doesn't play professionally anymore. Um, and my golf kind of didn't ever get that uh, <laughs> to those levels. But um, but yeah, so I, I played amateur golf and uh, ended up getting a scholarship to come over to the States to play college golf. And, and he had gone a year before me and played college golf at UNCW, uh, University of North Carolina, Wilmington. So I sort of followed in his footsteps and went, uh, went over to college at Mercer in Macon, Georgia and played, played college golf there. And what was that transition like for you moving to Georgia from England? Yeah, from, I mean it's yeah, pretty different. The UK, than, yeah, wow. but I remember my parents dropped me off. I I ne- I didn't want to live on campus. I think I was a bit, you know, I was a bit of a prima donna even then. I think, but uh, and I didn't want to. Li- I didn't want to live on campus because the dorms were so shockingly bad. They're not anymore, by the way. I'm a big supporter of Mercer University. The dorms are amazing now, but back then they were awful. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to live in this dorm. And so <laughs> they actually let me live off campus, and I rented my own apartment. 
Um, and my parents sort of left me at this apartment uh, at the age of 18. And uh, they sort of drove. I remember watching them drive down the road. And I was like, oh, my gosh, now I'm, I'm really alone. Oh my God, um, I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in this place. But I had, there was a family there, the Purcell family, who were, who were fantastic to me. And they looked after me. They gave me furniture and they gave me like everything I needed, introduced me to people that, um, you know, could get me like, uh, like my electricity turned on and things like that. And, um, and so I survived. And, uh, and, and the one thing that I didn't take very seriously was my education, which is kind of poor. And um, and I hadn't registered for classes the night before university started. And I ran into a, a, an advisor and he said, what classes are you taking? And I was like, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. And he said, well, you, you, haven't, you haven't registered? And I thought, no, I'm just here to play golf. And so uh, I took like the worst classes because they were the ones that were available. You know, when you're a freshman and you register the night before class, you just get the dregs. And so my first semester at Mercer was really bad. But we don't have grade point averages in the UK. Um, we, that, that, that just doesn't exist. And so when I, I think I got a 1.9 grade point average <laughs> my first semester and I came back for Christmas to London and my parents said, well, how did you do? And I said, well, I got a 1.9. It was great. And they were like, oh, brill, well done. Yeah. And then, <laughs> two, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. That's good. So, and my, uh, and so their neighbors were obviously the, his, their son, Adam had been through a year already. And it wasn't until I left to come back for my second semester that they obviously had dinner with their with their neighbors, Adam G's parents. And they said, oh, Tom's doing great. He got a 1.9. And they were like, yeah, it's not very good, actually. And so, uh, and so that, and then I got the call saying, what have you been doing over there? Have you actually been studying or doing it? So after that, I started to really realize I had to knuckle down. So I almost got kicked out, really, with my studies after the first semester. Well, you know, you can scrape by. It's fine. It's the college years. I managed to just scrape by, yeah. My golf wasn't much better either, so I was really losing everything at the time. Tell, us about, tell us about the golf experience. Tell us about playing on the team and, and how that Well, was. I remember um, I remember there was one of my good friends, actually. Uh, he's still a, a buddy of mine. He was from Vidalia, Georgia. You know, the onions, Vidalia onions. And, um, and I'd never heard of bad daily onions. I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I remember going to practice and he was putting and I was like, Oh, hi, I'm Tom. And he said, Oh, I'm Riley. And, uh, I said, Oh, where are you from? And he said, uh, he said, I'm from Vardalia. And I'm like, Oh, cool. You know, well, you know, where's that? And he was like, you ain't never heard of Vardalia. Like, what are you doing? Like, you and so, uh, you know, I was like, well, no, I'm not, you know, so I was kind of an alien coming into that environment <laughs> in Georgia, but I got on very well with all the guys. Um, but the, the thing that really scared me were the speed of the greens. Like I'd never putted on greens that fast, you know, and I got there in sort of September, you know, August, September when I was a freshman. And I remember playing the Idle Hour Country Club, which was, which was our home course in Macon, Georgia at the time. And getting onto the first green, and I mean, I couldn't, just couldn't keep the ball on the green. I mean, it was scary how fast the greens were, and I'd never seen anything like it. Nowadays, obviously, having lived in America for a while, you know, I've seen quick greens. But at the time, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. So the greens, I still don't. <laughs> greens over in the UK, typically, they're not running them as fast? They, they wouldn't run, no. Not on bent grass greens like that, no. Okay. no they're just, it's just another level. 
How did you find the style of play, not being able to run it up and having to hit it high? And Yeah, that didn't really suit me. One of my colleagues says that my short game starts at the tee, you know, so I, I didn't hit the ball very far. Um, and so that really didn't work for playing goal, college golf. I mean, you've got to hit it a long way, and I don't. And so when you're playing firm and fast golf courses in, in the UK over the summertime, it's fine. You can get away with it. But then when you go to play golf in the south in the summer when it's wet and, you know, you, dro- you don't get any run on your driver and you're driving it, you know, 225, 230 carry, <laughs> you know, it's not looking good. It's a, it's yeah. a struggle on a, on a it's good It's a day. struggle. Yeah, it's a yeah. struggle. <laughs> I swear that thing was supposed to run up a bit farther than that. Yeah, I don't know. I used to run yeah, so further in the, ball. In the UK. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's too funny. So you spent your time in college. You've kind of got your experience through that. And then you kind of realize it's time for me to transition into media. How did that go for you? Yeah, I started doing TV when I was at college. And um, I did, actually the spark was I went on a field trip to uh, CNN, believe it or not. And they, they, there was like this student... Um, a question and answer show. And I remember asking a question live on CNN. Somebody should pull the video. Um, and, and that was it. I got kind of like the, the bars of doing live TV. And that, that was, that was the moment where I really wanted to do TV. And my mom works in TV. So I'd kind of grown up. In it, what were you taking in, in university though? You were, were you taking business or were you taking journalism? Well, or where was time, that? At the time, Mercer had a degree program where you could create your own degree. It was a bit like, you know, creating your own pizza. You know, sounds and, like um, online schooling, and so it wasn't. It wasn't quite that. <laughs> but you could you could kind of put classes together and create a degree. So I created a a degree that was called media and business, and so that was the degree that I did. And so I took business classes and media classes, and then I I had a pretty good setup. Sounds like a better version of a like goosebumps choose your own ending type book. It sounds like the degree I need. Yeah, can we print this uh, degree out? I could use one of those. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they do this system anymore, just for the record. Uh, yeah. We're going to dip into Tom's mind here and recreate this Forjack business media enterprise education. I like this. Yeah. There exactly. you go. There you go. Write that down. Absolutely. So we are progressing into media. We found sort of our niche. This is something of interest. We want to chase this. What are the next steps for Tom in that journey? Yeah. And so I, when I was in college, I just sort of jumped straight in and, and did a, a lot of work and in internships. I actually interned with the European Tour Golf in 2003 on their, um, on their broadcast. And some of the people who were working back then are still working there now. And I see them wow. occasionally when I'm in Europe at their events. So that was kind of interesting. And I remember going to the, I think it was the, Johnny Walker PGA at Glen Eagles. I remember going to um, the English Open at uh, maybe, maybe the Forest of Arden. I can't remember. But I went to sort of – and the Celtic Manor, I went there as well. So, oh, And wow. some of those venues being used in this uh, six-week run that the tour is on at the moment. But um, So I did that, and I interned in Atlanta, and I just got as much practical experience as I could when I was in college and sort of ready to try and get a job in media when I when I finally graduated, which I did in four years. Some <laughs> Ooh, goodness knows how. That's yeah, good. how about that? Yeah. It was because I had credits from my schooling in the UK. That was the only thing that got me through in four years. Oh, we don't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you did the European Tour Division on the Golf Channel until, well, you were quoted saying that it ceased to exist. <laughs> <laughs> and then you shifted into more odd appearances on the PGA Tour and predominantly more the LPGA Tour. What was that shift like going from the European Tour onto the American side on the LPGA and PGA side? Yeah, I worked in Charlottesville, Virginia for a year um, after I graduated, which I then transitioned from there to Golf Channel. So I covered a lot of different sports when I was in Charlottesville. And they dressed me up. When I first went there, they dressed me up as the UVA Cavalier which is quite unique, actually. And so they decided that they should do a promo where I was dressed as the Cavalier. Oh, no. um, and so we went out to this farm where th there is actually a guy who dresses up as the UVA Cavalier. Like, that's his, like, I don't know if he gets paid, but it's one of his things he does. <laughs> oh, well, he did at the time. And he rides his horse onto the, onto the field, right? And so, and so they thought it'd be funny for me to do that. So we went out to his farm and uh and put me on his horse and dressed me up in his cavalier garb and uh and he rode around and they made it look like it was me and then they shot me sitting on the horse making saying a line to camera so that was kind of like my introduction to charlottesville people oh thought what God. in the world is this guy doing and uh and then i did a bunch of different sports i mean i i had no idea what i was doing um but thankfully after a year i managed to get down to golf channel and started doing golf channel uk which was the channel that went off the air uh which is quite a unique feat not many people have taken a whole channel down but i, I have done that um single-handedly well single done sir well done sir a channel down. and then yeah and so after that i was like lucky in that i i actually worked on something called the fedex market report and it was during the crash of 2008 so every day I would have to go on Golf Center and do this one minute update about complete chaos and carnage that was going on in the financial markets. You're like, you're like the fall so guy here. For yeah, everyone. I know. I, I mean, it. don't have me do anything because it will. <laughs> yeah, just get that job with the foreigner. Yeah, yeah. we'll just get me. Just call Tom. He'll, he'll clean um, it up. He's like the garbage man. And I was lucky. I was lucky that uh, LPGA came along and that they wanted me to do that in sort of 09. That's when I first started doing LPGA in 2009. It saved my saved my bacon. Tom, oh, I, um, yeah, there, I think there's just something about that British accent that when you hear them talking about numbers, that it just it's like, okay, that, that's not so bad. That sounds like a, a yeah. 1.9. That's pretty He's good. Trustworthy. Go. 1.9. It's a good GPA. <laughs> it's so, good handicap, maybe. One question. Yeah. I have, oh yeah, sorry. One question that I do have about yeah, just the world of like sports commentary is like. You guys are always pulling crazy numbers out of your butts and like, hey, here's some crazy stat about this guy. Like, what what's your setup like when you're watching golf and like what do you guys have in front of you that like is giving you these numbers? Is it someone texting you something? Is it just like a bunch of like dashboards? Yeah. yeah, dashboard stuff. What is that? What is what does the control panel look like from your um, perspective? When I'm commentating, I, I can see all of the holes that I'm doing usually. So I have a the camera that's on the hole that I'm doing. I can see on another monitor. And then I obviously see what you see at home They're on another monitor. So I have two monitors, one that shows me all the all the holes that I'm watching, and then another one that shows the the, the feed that's going out that we're supposed to be talking about. Uh, and in terms of um, stats and information, there on the PGA Tour, they have shot links. So there are, there's a lot of information at your fingertips. Uh, the LPGA does not have a, a system like that, but they do obviously have a scoring system so you can check people's scores. 
And then we have notes that are um, uh, produced for us every week about the players. And then on top of that, it's, it's up to us to come up with information. And we have somebody that helps us every week um, with information and sends things through. At the moment, during COVID, it has to be text through because they can't be with us in our booth um, because they need to, you know, we need to keep people apart. But under normal circumstances, we would have somebody with us that gives us information. But it's up to you what you use and what you say. And uh, sometimes you'll see something and think, well, I don't know if that's quite right. You know, you've got to think on your feet quickly. Right. And build yeah. up their own wealth of knowledge to that like, yeah i know this is something hey let's check this out but yeah it was just that was interesting and judy rankin has to be like the encyclopedia of golf right yeah i mean Judy's she's got to be a wealth of knowledge how's how's that experience working with her on on the judy's call? great i mean she's become a friend of mine and and uh you know we trust her her judgment on a lot of things and she um She's fantastic. I mean, she's been doing it for longer than kind of I've been alive. So <laughs> her experience in TV is, is incredible. And uh, she always says the right things on a Sunday. How, you know, whenever I work with Judy on a Sunday, when you're coming down the stretch and it's getting exciting, she always says exactly the right thing. And she doesn't, she doesn't speak too much, she doesn't speak too little. You know, she really knows when to come in, what to say. And, uh, and what, you know, what the right thing to say is I've always noticed that working with Judy. Well, I mean, that must be so inspiring for you. you use Judy as an example there, but also like working at a golf channel and seeing guys like Brandel and Frank and cookie who are, you know, quote unquote masters of their craft who just take in so much knowledge and put so much time into learning and being prepared for the job. I mean, that must resonate very well with you in the sense that you go, yeah, I want to be like that. Like I, I want to have that kind of knowledge and you know, even Brandel, whether you like his opinion or not, he's so well prepared for the job. I mean, it must be very inspiring for you to just see guys that. Yeah. Like, I mean, Brandel's great. I mean, Brandel puts in a lot of work, you know, I think people don't realize how much work he puts in and how much he studies and, uh, we were um, members of the same country club in Orlando, so we played a little golf together, and I know him and his wife pretty well. So, you know, you see, you see them, um, you see them there, and you know, you know Brando is an in- incredible um, storyteller, and he, he he just works very hard, and he obviously has strong opinions, and his opinions make him uh, famous. But the opinions come from him researching and, and, and finding out the info. He doesn't just go on live from and make it up as it goes along. I mean, it couldn't be. No, it's, it seems to be calculated. Yeah. For the most part. And I mean, he adds a little bit of that villainous sort of character to the mix, which is, it needs to happen on on golf channel for sure. Right. Yeah. But that's also because he is a lifelong student of the game. And unfortunately he spills out the truth and sometimes people don't want to hear it, but that's what it is. And Tom, I'm sure you faced this before in your career as well the truth hurts and people don't want to hear it at times. And unfortunately that's something they have to deal with as much as you have to deal with telling them and that person receiving the criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think on, on the live from shows, you've got to have an element of controversy. You've got to have some strong opinions because otherwise it's, it's kind of boring. You know, you you need, you, you watch it to, get a take you know his take or justin leonard's take or you know frank when before he left the show like you 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 want to know what they think about what happened that day at a particular event and maybe the that that particular day wasn't that interesting but on a day 
at a major where it's exciting or you know the the, the the night before the start of a major you want to kind of get a gauge of who's going to play well and how they think the the golf course is going to play you want them to have insightful opinions and somewhat controversial opinions and so that's why you know Brandel's in the position that he is and I, I think they do a great job I think live Forms a fantastic show and um you know with Justin on there and Michelle Weave's been doing some work on there so I think yeah, it's going to be, be interesting for sure yeah it's kind of a new generation for them yeah yeah, yeah. Is that a is that a trial thing, or is that going to be potentially permanent down the road, or is that? I don't know. I mean, I you know Michelle obviously has gone back and forth with the injury, and you know you think she's going to play well again, and then suddenly she gets injured, and you know she's such a sort of just a an unknown entity in her golf. You know, she's I mean, also I just, a mother now. She's a mother. Maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I mean, she, you know, maybe she has something else in her life and she isn't as interested in playing or maybe it's going to inspire her to, to prove to her kids that she, she is a great champion. I don't know. But uh, at the moment, obviously, she's been interested in doing some TV and I think that'll probably it's continue. Kind of, I, I have no idea, but I'm assuming yeah. it will continue for a little while. It's a, it's a cool sort of setup, her and Rolf, the Team Hawaii in the mix there. Yeah, and they've known each other for a long time. Right, and, and maybe it's a comfort thing. Interesting to bring yeah. her in to a PGA championship, but I guess, you know, that's a great sort of playing field for her to, to get her feet wet in. So that's kind of unique. What's your take on the LPGA for this year? And what are you super excited about? Well, I'm super excited about them playing, which is, uh, <laughs> to get back which to work. is a long time coming. Yeah. I think everybody yeah. wants to get back to work and it, it's been, it's been certainly doable and manageable, but I mean, easily um, they've got their protocols in place. They know what they're doing. They, um, you know, we're sort of two weeks in, and uh, it, it's working. Uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be a little bit different when they go over to Scotland. But Scotland's very, very strict. I mean, the 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 rules that are in place for the players in Scotland are really strict. Um, so I, I don't see how it's going to go wrong over there. Even if a few people were to test positive, I mean, that they have solid plans in place for playing in scotland and and uh the players are basically going to be in the hotel or the golf course and that's it right um so so i you know i don't see an issue with that and then coming back to the states you know it's going to be a bit of a transition coming from scotland to arkansas um again i they're going to be on a charter i I just don't see any big issues coming up for the lpga i'm excited about the way it's going to play out i'm excited for some of the players to get a chance to uh to do well without um, some of the top Asian players uh, in in the fields, in they've the decided to stay in Asia and play in Korea. So we may mm-hmm. get to see some new faces, some new names coming through that maybe wouldn't have had a chance before. Um, but I think it's just a case of getting through this really tough period and hopefully getting into the middle of next season where we're sort of back to normal. That's kind of the hope. Goodness knows what's going to happen, but I hope so. And with the LPGA being such an international tour. Were you a little surprised when they decided to still go play abroad and not really kind of set up like a bubble country, I guess, in the States and just play out of the States? Um, Did you find it surprising that Mike Wan decided to go that way, especially with the PGA not playing the Open? Yeah, I mean, well, the the Open was a little different for the men. I think there was... um, it was a much bigger operation a little bit earlier in the year. And I think there was some, you know, insurance situation. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing there were maybe some insurance things in there and some protocols in there from the, um, that, that covered them a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in terms of the women, uh, you know, I think it, they they would struggle to have events in America um, just just creating them. I mean, I, I, that's not an easy thing for them to do. Um, they managed to do it with a drive-on championship at Inverness. Um, who knows? They may be able to do one or two more later this year if some events disappear. But uh, I think just sort of being able to put an event together is very, very difficult. So if they can go over and play and the sponsors are going to be committed to paying the purse, um, then then I think it's no problem. I mean, I've obviously been in the UK within the last few months and it's totally fine. You know, the travel across the Atlantic is totally fine. I think it's actually safer traveling across the Atlantic than it is traveling domestically in the States because there are far few people on the on the planes and it's, it's pretty strict. Um, rules and regulations with international travel so so i don't you know i i just don't see it as a big problem i think some players are the only issue that players have from what i've heard is that if they were to test positive they will be stuck in a foreign country for two weeks right now there's worse places to be than scotland <laughs> you know i could tell you some great places to go and isolate in scotland um but but i think there is a fear that you know there's a bit of a fear of the unknown uh, for, for players, like if, let's say if they show up, they play one week there and then they test again and they test positive and now they're like, oh my gosh, I've got to sit in this hotel for two weeks in Scotland. Like, what am I going to do? Panic, panic. So I think that that's kind of the fear for these players. But knowing the RNA and the LPGA like I do, they'll have everything sorted. It'll it'll be taken care of. These players will be looked after. They'll be, you know, repatriated back to the States once they're seam fine. Like, seamless process. Yeah, it's not a big problem. And I think it's just what they're going to have to get used to. Um, and of course, it's a big purse. Like, they're going to play for a big purse at the AIG Women's Open. There's money on the line. It's at Royal Troon. Like, if everything goes to plan, you know, there might be a couple of positive tests. Those people will just be really unlucky. Hopefully, they're, they're, they're okay health-wise. They're just, you know, mild symptoms or whatever. But for the majority, the vast majority of people, it's going to be an incredible experience to go out there and play Troon uh, without any crowd. They, they might not even know where they're going. Like, where, where are the holes you know, without any crowd? What's that experience been like for you from an announcer's perspective just to see? I know you haven't been out there that much, but, I mean, just to see some of these venues and there's just nothing going on. Yeah. Well, no grandstands. One of my colleagues today. It's actually quite nice. You know, it's very <laughs> relaxed. There's nobody out there. You can go around. You get around. No problem. Um, obviously, we'd love to be able to have fans there. But it's a really different experience being at a golf tournament with nobody there. And I yeah. think golf actually works quite well without fans. A Sunday, Sunday, Sunday Championship Sunday is not that great. Um, because you want some energy from the fans. And I know a few times on the PGA Tour with some shots they've had coming down the stretch, I'm like, ah, I wish they'd had a big crowd reaction. But for the majority of it, it's absolutely fine. Like, I, I enjoy watching it. And, like, the ball up where it ends up without, like, getting <laughs> in some fans. Yeah, and, like, exactly, yeah. Was. It's like, now nah, let's see where this goes. Well, yeah, this would be a good transition before we move on to something else. But now with the first major coming up with the PGA Championship going out to the TPC Harding Park, uh, you know, they kind of always talk about U.S. Opens and PGA Championships where the little miss is actually way worse than the big miss. It's actually kind of like a level playing field now. Oh, it's going to be juicy. Everywhere is going to be juicy. There's no, yeah, there's no help, man. No, no trample down rough, nothing like that, right? They might sick. lose some golf balls at uh, Harding Park <laughs> with looking at that rough as I did the other day. Kenny Harms posted this video of him throwing two golf balls down in the rough out there. And like 
they totally disappeared and he walks over to where they're at. And then there's like three other golf balls right around there. And you're like, wow, like wouldn't have had any idea. Yeah. 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 That'd be unusual, but and then unusual to, to see guys losing golf balls in a major, but I th- it might happen. It might happen. <laughs> might. I mean, even around the practice green, the rough look thick. I can't even imagine what it looks like on the golf course. Yeah. It's well, going to be especially in- there as well. The ball doesn't go anywhere, and it's it's cold, and you know it's it's a it's a tough place to play golf in San Francisco. Oh, it yeah. really is. Thick, it's thick. A, that yeah. marine layer is tough to get through. I think somebody this week will uh, prevail and get their big break. Wah, wah. <laughs> this is a nice segue into yeah. Tom. Talk us through the big break experience and how how that all came to be. Well, it came about because Vince Cellini was the host and he left the network and they needed a, a, um, somebody to do it. And they asked me. And, they threw uh, the fall guy in. Yeah, they just <laughs> they took a punt and it was me. And so uh, it worked out quite well. I mean, I did, um, what did I do, 11 seasons, I think, and uh, it over five years. And, um, and I had a blast. I had an absolute blast. It, it, you know, it's, it, it was it was only two weeks. So it was like two weeks at a time. So the, the, the amount of time that I spent working on it was very little in a, in a, in a calendar year, but it came, became a huge part of my, of my work. And, um, and there's so many memories and stories and things that happened. It was, it was, it was, it was crazy when it was going on. Um, you look back now and you think wow i wish i'd appreciate it a bit more and maybe we'll redo it who knows there's maybe some plans for that but um well, what was what yeah. was shooting like i mean i i know i've talked to a couple different guys that have played kent edger Derek gillespie some yeah. some of these canadian guys and they said you know the worst part was waiting in between shots for Lots stuff to get set waiting. up yeah. like what what was that like behind the scenes that we didn't get to experience or, or get any insight into so each challenge was mapped out meticulously and played out by the producers before we would travel. So that, you know, there was a pretty big production team that worked on the show and they would work constantly. That was their full-time job was working on big breaks. So they would spend months putting together these challenges and they would have tens of challenges that they would come up with and they would pick the best ones to go on the show. And obviously they would reuse challenges, but they would play out each challenge and there was only one challenge in the whole of the time that i did the show that they screwed up and nobody noticed that was the best part of it no contest i can't tell you which one it was but no contestant noticed <laughs> that there was a massive flaw in the challenge. and and, and my, i was thinking it was stephanie sparks and stephanie and i were like hold on this isn't fair what happens if xyz that that's not going to work and halfway through whatever we said to the producer this is and he was like just don't say anything. We know that we we know we've made a mistake, but let's just not make a big deal of it. Yeah. And that was the only challenge that they that they did that that they made a mistake on. Every single other one was was Perfect. flawless. And so yeah. when we would shoot, the majority of the time a player would hit. If there was another shot that needed to be hit, they would reset the cameras and you would hit that shot. And then they would go back. And hit again. So the resetting of the cameras took forever. So if let's say it were two players and they were, um, you know, they had to hit three shots to to a green and then get up and down. You, they'd all hit their shots. Then you'd reposition the cameras for the first one, and then reposition for the next. And I mean, you would literally 
And so we would sit around doing nothing for like an hour. And then we would have to go up and say, oh, that's an amazing shot. And hit one shot. And, and they'd hit one shot. Um, oh and they God. could practice a little bit during. Okay, okay. Yeah, they would, there would be an area that they would have a way where they could practice. So they're not going um, in cold to these shots. We try, like well, because the, it was better for them not to be cold. Like you wanted better. <laughs> you wanted play that Shank. was good, right? Yeah, you didn't yeah. want them to be shanking and fatting it everywhere. So you would, you would give them a chance to warm up. Um, but it wasn't always possible. And so... Um, and it, it, there, there was also a lawyer with us at all times. And every challenge, the contestants would have to sign off that they understood the challenge so that oh there would be God. no legal repercussions. So there was yes. a lot of things going on behind the scenes. So they would have to read through, oh sign the God. document that they understood what they were doing. And that sounds, was, you know, sounds painful. Yeah. And so myself <laughs> and my co-host would literally just sit around talking for about three hours and then we'd say three words and then we'd sit down. And oh my God. Yeah, there was a lot of sitting around. Did you guys ever expect anybody to go on to have supreme success? Like, like recently, Richie? Yeah. Just, Richie what, a, what a story, right? Yeah. I think we did from that season. I mean, that was Palm beaches. I believe that he was on and, um, there were some really good players on there. And, uh, and so we expected we expected uh, good things. I mean, the players were. It was always a bit of a. There was always a battle in the production between producers that wanted really good players and producers that wanted really good characters. Right. And so there was always a bit of sort of butting of heads. Um, I wasn't ever involved in the casting of contestants but I would get a fair idea about who was going to be on the show and I would get a rundown of what they were like. And certain producers would say, Oh, I love this. You know, this contestant is going to be great. And others would say that guy's going to be useless, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, you know, there was, there was, there was always a back and forth. Like certain producers wanted good players and certain, and certain ones didn't. So when the producers that wanted the better players won out, you knew that the players that were going to be on had great potential. Um, yeah. And then other times you knew there was they weren't maybe going to be as good. Got to have a little bit of eye candy, though. I mean, it's that's what it is, right? It can't be all just straight grinders. Well, I mean, I th yeah. Well, I mean, who did you like then from the men's shows? Yeah, I was going to say who put money down on Tommy Two Gloves. Two Gloves, yeah. I mean, that was before I started hosting, so I knew um, I knew that. Uh, that, that you know he had obviously been through and was a real character but he was a character and could play you know that was like the perfect mix you know if you could find guys like that which they're not there's not many of those around no yeah, he was that, certainly a character yeah super, super unfortunate it will sidestep where that's going super unfortunate that none of the canadian guys really pulled through and did anything special it's too bad because a lot of good talent comes out of canada unfortunately but uh yeah, nowadays anyway, we're seeing lots, lots more Canadian players on the on the PGA Tour that are being successful. So that's a good thing, for sure. Do you have any season that stood out as like your favorite season of the Big Break? Well, I think that you know I would always base it on the venues because I had to stay there for two weeks. It was like, oh, I got to be here for two weeks. There were there weren't that many places that we didn't enjoy being for two weeks. But I think Ireland was hilarious because the weather was so bad. And we were there to sell Ireland, right? And the weather just, I mean, it was so bad. It was a joke. And every day, we almost got killed by a tree that fell over. It was that bad. And, um, and I remember the first day of shooting, we, 
I got back to my room and I just sat in the shower. I and mean, we were staying in the K Club, which was super nice. So it was it wasn't gross. Yeah, it's in not the terrible. No kidding. And uh, and I just thought, oh my god, I could do this for another like twelve days. This is insane. Crying, shaking. Um, it was I was freezing, and it was in May. And I remember then coming back to the states and being at a golf club, and uh, this this lady said, I remember I overheard this lady was talking about the show, and she said, you know. I was going to go to Ireland, but after seeing that weather, I would never go there. <laughs> oh my! That's the only reason we did the show is to promote Ireland. That's not what I want to hear. Don't leave that we review just, on Yelp. We were just really, really unlucky with the weather, and Ireland's just a phenomenal place to go. And it was just, yeah, it was sad. But like the Dominican Republic, spending two weeks at the Casa de Campo was incredible. Like going out and playing the teeth of the dog every evening was, I mean, just awesome. magic. There was nobody on the course. We just it was like having the place to ourselves. And, um yeah there were so many places that were that were fantastic yeah well speaking of golf resorts we'll transition over to maybe the most famous one 2014 glenn eagles your first taste of the Ryder cup yeah yeah i shot big break right before that actually yeah talk us through that whole experience i mean i remember watching that and i mean besides the 2012 medina that was probably my favorite Ryder Cup. I mean, it was electrifying literally from start to finish. Yeah. So my schedule was always interesting because I would have to try to juggle big break. And I remember being really panicked thinking, you know, the Ryder Cup and big break and how we can do. And so the, they were, they were, the producers were great. They kind of finagled the, the shooting schedule where I could leave and get to, um, and get to Scotland, uh, right away. So we shot the final episode of, the Palm beaches and we had to shoot it early and there were storms coming in. I was like, Oh my God, I've got to get this done. I need to get the right cup. And so we finished and then I hightailed it to Orlando and flew to I think Frankfurt and then Frankfurt to wherever it was in Scotland. And, um, and so, yeah, it was an incredible experience. We were share, I was sharing a house with, uh, five other guys. That was like the worst part of the week, but the, um, the, the, I remember sitting in the tower there behind, uh, I was on 16. And so looking at this crowd, and I still have a photo on my screen, save of looking at this crowd, like snaking back down the 16th hole there at Glen Eagles, which um, was, was absolutely insane. And that was where I had done my first event as an intern in 2003 at the oh, cool. Johnny Walker PGA at Glen Eagles. So, um, so it was kind of full circle for me. And what was it like? 12 whatever that was 11 years later being there calling the golf on golf channel and nbc it was it was pretty awesome yeah yeah i can imagine i mean even watching it i can't imagine being there but you you kind of had the beginning of certain careers there you had spieth and reed and then you had the older guys in gmac and keimer and you're looking at prime rory in that time i i just can't imagine getting to be there and witnessing that in person like and but the venue itself was just so perfect for that Ryder cup yeah a storybook for sure well i think there's a lot of pressure on those venues to to live up to to being a proper match play venue you know if you think of scotland you think of all the great courses you probably wouldn't pick that particular course there are you know there are three courses at glen eagles and the other two are classics but that was built for the Ryder cup to to be able to host that event and to create the excitement and then we saw it again at the solheim last year and so i think when you put that in the mix it was very interesting and i was glad that it worked out so well and then you just kind of see the passion of the european players 
um, and how they somehow come together as a team um, for the Ryder Cup. And that was always what struck me. It was, you know, why do the Americans not come together as well? And I felt like at the time there was this growing group of young players from the States and I felt like there was some camaraderie between them. We saw like those, you know, the spring break videos that they were doing. And I thought, you know what, we might be seeing a camaraderie of young Americans that will rival this spirit that the Europeans will have. And maybe it was there where things started to change for America. They realized they needed something. And it was like, we've got to make something work in years to come. And I thought of, I kind of saw it there that there was this group of young American players who were potentially on the horizon who would carry the Americans for 10 more years and we could really have a, a solid rivalry. Um, but that week, you, you just see what it means to, um, to, the, to the Europeans. I don't, I don't know why they step up. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, it's sort of David versus Goliath, although the teams aren't that. If there's not much of a difference in the teams, you know, when you look at them on any given Sunday, either team could win. Um, but I think there's just kind of a them and us and they see the PGA tour as this big juggernaut and the little European tour. And, um, you know, they want to beat the Americans, even though a lot of the European players live in America and, you know, basically American, you know, yeah, they're all neighbors um, in Florida. Yeah. They're all neighbors <laughs> and they live in American life. It's just for that week, they suddenly see this, you know, big country, the U S and they want to beat it. So, yeah, um, I think that's, that's kind of the mentality. I mean, Poulter has, he's basically lives in Lake Nona. I mean, you know, he spends the summers in, in London, but you know, his life is very American, but for that one week, you know, he suddenly is this major European player and it's, it's fantastic. It makes the event and it makes people really want to watch. And, um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of patriotism in the States, you know, once they get the flag going and playing for the USA and people are really passionate. And then I think there's this, this, this feeling in, the Europe, in Europe that they want to beat America. And that just creates this cauldron of excitement. And it's just so good. All right. So here's a question then for you, for someone who had seen them in 2014. Do you feel that the U.S. team has the same amount of camaraderie as they did then? Or is it worse now? Because there is like that sense of the villain figure within the U.S. team. Kind of is, yeah. There's a few villains. I mean, I think Deshambo and Patrick Reed have kind of become these villains. Um, I think Patrick and, Reed is now passed the torch to Deshambo, yeah, really, which is awesome. I, but you know, so I'd be. I don't know how they would fit in. I mean, I guess we'll find out next year. But um, and I think. That, but yeah, so there's become a bit of a division in this plan that I thought was going to work really well. Um, the Brooks and Bryson duo. And Brooks and Bryson may not play together, and you've but you've got like the the passing of the torch. Like you know, is will Woods play? You know, I think there was all you know. We had this big discussion for the Olympics. Like I felt like Tiger winning a gold medal would be the, like the walk off for him. Um, some people think, oh no, like nah, he wouldn't, that doesn't really bother him. He wants to win majors, but yeah, it's majors. I mean, sure. I think, I feel like Tiger's so competitive. He, he like, why wouldn't he want to win a gold medal? Yeah. Like why? Like he wants like, to win he, anything. He has, he wants to win anything. Right. Every, so everything. I felt yeah. like with his body, the way it is, and you never know how many more years or months or weeks he's going to play. Uh, I felt like winning in japan and winning the um gold medal would would be like 
the greatest sporting Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe it will happen next year, but I'm glad it's been pushed back a year because he might not have actually made the Olympic field. Um, and I, you know, that to me, and I was going to work the Olympics and I was like, this is going to be amazing. Um, so I was a bit disappointed in that, but I think in terms of the Ryder cup, will tiger play? Will he be, you know, I don't know. That's, the first Ryder Cup where Tiger is not playing and he's fit and he just doesn't make it on merit. Um, and he literally like, this is the end of the Tiger era. That's going to be a big changing of the guard, you know? Um, and maybe we're there. Maybe we're not. Um, I hope we're not. Say it ain't so, Tom. Yeah, like he's got so, man, in You're breaking my heart right now. You just don't know. And Do I think this? then we'll look at like this this younger core group of players. And but like who takes over from from Tiger? Like nobody. You know, we've had Ryder Cups where he's not there, but like you yeah. always felt like maybe he'll come back, you know. And then there's gonna be one where you're gonna say to yourself, This is it, he's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna play anymore. So Mm, I can see I don't know. stepping up and being a pretty good leader in that group. He's got that Tiger energy. Who is that? JT. Yeah. No, he's kind of a sensible guy. He's got uh, on a, a sort of an old head on young shoulders. And I think uh, that's what I mean. You've got JT, you've got Ricky, you've got this um, Jordan Spieth. So, you know, he's kind of gone off the boil a little bit. But you've got like some guys that could really come through and be um, – be a core group of players and I felt like they had a good camaraderie and they like they they have they bond well but it's kind of become a bit fractured recently yeah and even just there like you listen to Brooks and like there's definitely this sense from a lot of tour guys that like golf is just golf right like it's I'm not here to like I play my golf it's how I'm gonna make my money and then and that could also get in the way of team America too yeah, I mean, it's a bit more individual. I mean, that's always been the case. Um, but it's always kind of what you felt in the U.S. is that they, for the U.S. team, they're they're a bunch of individuals, and then they come together, but they're still quite individual. And um, and then in Europe, for, the, 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 there's a feeling that guys eat together, they they spend time together. The the, the countries, you know, if you go to a European tour event, you'll see you know, the Belgian guys eating together, the French guys eating together, the Spanish guys eating together. Um, just because they have that natural bond of coming from the same place, whereas that doesn't really happen in the States. You know, you right. might get guys that went to college together or their buddies, whatever, they go out to dinner. But there's a lot of um, sort of an individual sense of, of playing each week as individuals, and they don't really come together as well during a Ryder Cup. Um, but I think that's what makes the Ryder Cup so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you never quite know what's going to happen. You've had the opportunity to experience a lot of these different sort of flagship events. What is one of the most important things or one of the most impressive things about your job? Well, I think it's um, having the core, you know, at a, a potentially at a big moment. You, you never really know when that's going to come. Is that um, ever scripted? No. Well, no. You, I mean, I, I think there are certain like winning calls that are scripted in people's mind. They have something they're going to say. And I think that's pretty obvious for, you know, we um, we've seen over the, over yeah. the years i don't think Vern lundquist uh scripts it because if he does he pulls it off so well I mean, um and and he's he's just incredible i mean he's had some of the best calls and he nails it every time um but i think having that responsibility and, the, and it really is terribly exciting in a in a Ryder cup or a solheim cup president's cup 
um, when it's match play and you're, you're really down to the wire and you're calling it. I mean, I think when we did the Soheim Cup last year, that was the most intense TV production I've ever, I've ever been part of at the very end um, yeah. with Pedersen having that part. And, uh, and, you know, the timing of that was, was essential that um, on 17 that, that we showed that first yeah. uh, and it, it wasn't far away from not happening. And so it was, it was, um, it was quite intense <laughs> behind the scenes that they showed the part on 17 and then got live to 18, which they did perfectly. Um, but if they hadn't, then neither one would have made sense, you know, because one had to happen with before right. the other. So, um, so that kind of stuff is happening a lot behind the scenes that people don't, don't realize. And we're privy to that because we can see it all and hear it. So, um, so that was a really intense moment. And then when, when Pedersen held that part, it was like insane. You know, yeah. Now this is kind of a two part question. One as a broadcaster and two as a viewer, when you speak of changing of the guards, when CBS announced that they were going to be cutting ties with Costas and McCord, how did you view that from a broadcaster standpoint? And then how did you look at it from the viewer standpoint? Were you disappointed or did you just kind of go and think like, yeah, maybe maybe it is time for a changing of the guard? Well, I don't know. CBS, you know, I don't, I don't really know what goes on there. Yeah. But, um, well, I think the question is who's going to take over. And, uh, if you don't have people to take over, then, you know, you're not really changing the guard, you know, um, you're just getting rid of the old guard. And so, you know, I think that to me was, you know, in my, in in my role as a broadcaster, I thought, well, who's going to take their jobs? Um, why have they done this? Um, is it a financial thing? Is it a philosophical thing? I, I don't know. Um, is it a political issue behind the scenes and, and, you know, organizations want different people. Um, so I don't, I didn't know. And I, I still don't really know why they did it, but, um, and then as a broadcaster, a broadcaster, I thought, well, who's going to take over? And obviously Frank Nobolo has, has stepped in there very well as, as, um, a whole announcer and you know he's a friend of mine i've worked with frank for a long time and uh he's a great guy and uh, i think he's going to be a phenomenal broadcaster there for hopefully as long as he wants um yeah, he's that? done well he's done well so far for sure he, yeah, he's a good yeah. feeling he's done he's doing a lot better than a few of the other guys that have taken the chair but as, sure. a, as a fan yeah i mean it's you know you want to you want people that you're familiar with and you want people that you're comfortable listening to and the thing is everybody has an opinion you know what somebody could say oh tom abbott's like the worst broadcaster i hate that guy and other people will say oh i love that guy he's great you know so and it, you know there's, there's nothing you can do about that people either love you or they don't um but it's it's having that familiarity and have being comfortable and there are people that you watch that you really enjoy and there are other people that you don't and you know when you switch on and you hear Jim Nance he's very comfortable because he's such a legendary voice that as soon as you hear him, you think, Oh, you know, you're comfortable listening to this and I know who that guy is and I know who that guy is. So I think it takes time to bring new people in. And I think that's probably what's happening at CBS. I don't know who's taking over. I haven't, I don't know who's doing the PGA for them this week, but um, I believe they have Curtis strange jumping in this week. Okay. Yeah. Curtis is a nice guy and yeah, he's experienced. Yeah. 
So I'm so, going to switch. I'm going to switch gears again back to uh, LPGA and talk about up and coming players. We've been fortunate enough to have basically the whole Ruffles family on the show as of late. We had Ryan right. on a while back. We've had Gabby and her family on. What do you think about these new and up and co- up and coming players that are on the LPGA and and who should we be looking for to really succeed this year? Good question. I mean, I think there isn't enough time this year to really get a good sense um, of who's going to come through. Um, but you know, I think it, it's always very difficult to to know who's going to sort of make that next step. Um, and looking looking at the rookies, um, Haley Moore is an interesting character. I mean, she's done very well as a uh, as a college player um sierra brooks is a young player who could bring a lot of uh, attention to the tour um patty tavatanikit is a good player who who should do well but it, i remember we had <laughs> judy rankin might kill me for telling the story but there was a player who came out about 10 years ago whose name is marina stutz she was from austria and she absolutely ripped it i mean her golf swing was incredible she swung it like ernie l she was i think 18 years old and she you thought well where has this girl come from you know she's she's come out on tour she's qualified for the tour and and she is a can't miss player i mean this is going to be the next big thing and we had to pick uh, a player who we thought would be the rookie of the year and judy said on the air i'm picking marina stutz and if she doesn't do well i should lose my job Marina Stutz didn't make a single cut and, re- <laughs> and disappeared after he, I, I follow her on, 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 on Instagram. And I think, she, you know, she doesn't really play much golf anymore. And she's living back in, in Austria and she, you know, got a real job and she went to university and whatever. Do you hang that over Judy's head every once and in a while? And we remind her all the time of Stutz. Yeah. You're lucky to be uh, here, Judy. Absolutely. You cannot say that and, and get away with it. Um, and we oh, remind her regularly about Stutz. And, yeah. you know, and so, but that's an example that it's just so difficult to tell who is going to be a, a world beater and who is just going to disappear. I mean, you look at Maria Farsi. Oh, I, she, I, she's really struggled. I mean, Cupcho, I think, is going to be a solid campaigner. But, um, and Kristen Gilman, I think, would be a solid campaigner. But you look at uh, Farsi, and I've been very disappointed. And I, I can't, um, I can't put my finger on why. I remember having dinner with Lorena Ochoa last year at Evian, and we were talking about Maria. And you know, it's, it's, it's. She just hasn't made the transition that I really felt she would make. Um, and maybe it's going to take some time for her. But she's definitely had some issues uh, and some some high numbers that I that I just didn't expect. And maybe she thought it was going to come uh, easier than it did. And she had a lot of support from sponsors, and there was a lot of fanfare. And it just hard transition, out. though, right? To that it ranking it's a, it's with that tough, pressure. Yeah, you go from being the the big you know the big fish in the pond, and suddenly you're in this you know much bigger sea, and it's a, it's a lot harder to swim. So yeah, um, so I. You know, I hope that she does well. I think she'll bring a great amount of attention to the tour if she can start winning. But at the moment, it's a little ways away. She'll probably go and win now this week. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Seems like it's necessary for the LPGA now. I mean, watching that swing and now kind of going through that era of when all the Asian players came in and it was this robotical, perfect golf swing. Whereas now you get this like tight, very individualistic golf swing that's 
very powerful, and I think that's exactly what the game kind of needs to move forward. That that's what the ladies' game needs. Well, I think the power game is going to come to the women's game. Um, it's it's starting, but I think it's going to come, and when it does, it, the difference is going to be stark between those players that can hit it like Maria Farsi and Anne Van Dam and the regular, even the shorter players on tour. And I think it's going to push the shorter players on tour uh, out of the mix a bit more. Um, they're only going to be able to compete on certain courses. Of courses, yeah. Um, because, you know, the difference in the length that a player hits it on the LPGA is, is um, there's a bigger differential than there is on the PGA Tour. Mm. And so the power game um, is, is a... I think something that could really change the the women's game, but um, the the key is keeping it in the fairway. And I think, you know, with the power game, if you start spraying it, as long as you hit it far enough, you get away with it. Um, I'm interested to see how that will work in the women's game, whether they, that there is a strength factor of, of, you know, being able to power it out of the rough, which has always been kind of an issue. Um, you know, it's not it's not great to be hitting it 230 sideways in the rough and powering it. It just doesn't work like that, yeah, you know? And that's way. why you hit it straight. And, you know, if you, I would say if you go and play in a pro-am on the LPGA Tour, the majority of players will hit it probably slightly further than, you'll say, a five or six handicap. Maybe, yeah, about the same. Like between, okay, a guy that hits it is a, a scratch handicap who hits it long. He'll probably hit it past them. But the majority of good players will hit it the same distance as an LPGA player in a Pro-Am. But they'll, they'll beat them by 10 shots. You know, a guy, a, a, a scratch shoots 72, they could easily shoot 62. No, not many scratches are shooting 62. You know what I mean? No. So, and then, so you can learn a lot from playing with an LPGA player because you're like, well, they hit it the same distance as me and they beat me by 10 shots, you know. Um, and I think... Yeah, it's accuracy. What I think is going to be interesting is that you introduce the power game to the LPGA. How does the accuracy work? You know, um, and on the men's side, these guys that can hit it miles, it doesn't make as big a difference if they spray it a little bit because they're going to, you know, a shorter shot in. Yeah, they got a um, wedge in. It doesn't really matter. They can... It may not work at Harding Park because <laughs> you, you can't find the ball. But, um, but you know, it, that, that I think is, a, is an interesting um conundrum and how that's gonna play out but like maria farsi may be the future of, of what we're gonna see yeah. so i guess that kind of like takes us into a perfect segue um yeah going into covid obviously golf is one of those sports that's had to bounce back a little quicker than others we've experienced a bit of a golf boom up here in canada um yeah what's your take on the state of the game today just as like an overall golf society like is it becoming popular everywhere you're going and then maybe even yeah with a note on that power thing like yeah the equipment discussions and ball that's going on what do you think on a tour level side of things state of the game and average golfer kind of situation yeah. i mean i think i think golf is in a good place golf is so connected to the economy and at the moment we're seeing a sort of bucking of the trend because the economy is tanking for the most part in certain respects I mean, a lot of people are losing their jobs and golf is still going up i think golf might take a hit um in the you know it's always a bit of a knock-on effect you know people lose their jobs it takes a few months for them to lose their membership or stop playing 
stop playing as much um, as much golf. But and so I think golf is really connected with the economy and because it is expensive. You know, it's it's expensive to play. Um, it's expensive to be a member of a of a country club. That's one of my biggest worries with the game is that it's too expensive to be a member of a golf course, uh, certainly in the U.S. And we keep we keep driving the service level and the expectations of country clubs higher and higher and higher, which means the costs are higher and higher and higher. And then that pushes that, that is a big barrier for entry for people getting into the game. Um, but I think, I think golf is healthy. It's a, it's a sport, which is um, good for you. you can get out and walk. I think we'll have more people walking, playing the game as we move forward, like less people using golf carts, I hope um got that's not very good for revenue for the for the courses but i think it's it's uh it's better for people's health and i think during covid what we're starting to see is that more people are working from home which means they have more time on their hands because they're not commuting and so therefore they have more time to play golf and you know if golf is a reasonably affordable thing for them to do they're going to do it but my biggest worry is is the economy tanking and people losing their jobs and the first thing that goes are the memberships and the the expenses that can easily be slashed and so and then there'll be this mass panic where people say oh golf's dying people aren't playing golf it's like no they still love golf they would play if they could but they can't afford to play mm-hmm. and you know maybe they're playing a few less rounds you know maybe they're not buying as much equipment it to me it's not rocket science i think there needs to be a push for certain parts of society to be able to play the game um but golf is expensive it's like going to a luxury restaurant or really nice. if you don't have any money you're not going to go <laughs> um and you know if you've got cash then you're going to go and when people are doing well they spend money and they they, they want to play golf so it's not like going to go out in the park and throw a football you know it, it costs money to play golf and i think but i do think uh, in general with the game we need to encourage more people to play we need to get more juniors we need to get more young women playing and uh you know there's no reason why we shouldn't have 50 50 participation with men and women you know the, the, there is no reason for that i mean if it was nfl football yeah i can understand why there wouldn't be 50 50 participation but with golf there is no reason why we shouldn't have that do you think that right now since we're kind of in this covid era golf boom i guess that this fashionable designer boutique golf something like bandon or stream song is now becoming you know so big and the people that are just getting into the game they're sitting there looking at it like okay well it costs five hundred dollars to go and play but then i still need to get there and maybe that's not so accessible whereas if you had a good muni track or just a decent public track that was 25 bucks that was really fun that you could play quickly maybe that would entice more people to kind of get involved in the game like that or do you think otherwise well i think you know golf is aspirational a lot of times and there are these these places that are set up for that and i think bandon you know sets up for aspirational golf trips for um for buddies uh, to go out there and, and play, and um, and that's great. But I, I I and I think it you know to play Pebble Beach is like six hundred bucks, and so but it's an aspirational trip, and it's an amazing trip, and you're not playing it every week. You know, it's not like well, some people maybe, but you know, I you know, it, it, people are that's like a once in a lifetime deal, and that you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. 
But I do think that there needs to be places where people can play and it's affordable. Um, and maybe there needs to be more emphasis on city courses and more um, emphasis on why the game is healthy. You know, and we we have a lot of places in uh, in the world that put money into you know sports facilities and public sports facilities, but they don't think about doing it for golf courses. Um, why not? You know, it's it's good to go and walk eighteen holes. It's good for you, and uh, and so um, you know, in in Winter Park in Florida, uh, my colleague Matt Janella and another colleague of mine, Matt Hegarty, um, have championed the Winter Park nine hole and had it redesigned. And it's a great public facility and it's cheap, and people can take their families to go out there, and it's in good shape. And that is a prime example of of a place that really works very well. And um, I think if there was more emphasis on the game and pushing that, which there are, I mean, it's not like the USGA and the RNA aren't doing that. But, um, you know, I think sometimes golf gets a bad rap and it shouldn't. But things yeah. like that are going to help with the, with the sustainability piece for sure moving forward. So I think that needs to be more of a focus rather than these big, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with discovery properties, but I mean, it doesn't oh, yeah. have to be on that sort of a carnival level where it's, a complete circus, yeah. right? I mean, it, it can the be The Madison Club is yeah. the most insane I used to work I've down in uh, Palm, Palm yeah. Desert, so. I, I think that is, I mean, that uh, that's my number, one of my number one golf experiences. It's absolutely incredible. It? Yeah, I have a friend who's a member there. Awesome. We go and play there. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Have you been up to the quarry at La Quinta? Up behind you know PJ what? West? Someone just asked me to go play there. And so I haven't been, there. but I, I, I've been invited. So I'd like have to. You'll love that even more than both Fazio designs, but you'll love it even more than the Madison. Great, great, great property. Yeah, you won't be yeah. disappointed for sure. Well, Tom, we always kind of like to ask our guests their wow story. They're the story that always stands out for them. And I know you've spent enough time on the LPGA or the PGA or even your time in college, just a story that really has always stuck with you and just been your wow story. What is that? Well, I thought about this because you did give me a bit of warning. And so uh, a few years ago uh, at the ANA Inspiration, I had a call from the tournament, the then tournament director, who's a friend of mine, and he said, look, um, and I spoke, I hosted their uh, dinner, so I kind of had a, a good relationship with them. And they said, look, I know you're coming in next week, you're working the tournament, you're going to host this dinner. Would you like to play in the Pro-Am? And I said, yeah, it'd be great. You know, I love playing Pro-Am. So he said, now you've, you're going to play with Caitlyn Jenner. And it's Caitlyn's first oh, yes. appearance since she she had come out as sort of having this transition and i said okay uh that should be cool so i played and it was an absolute media circus there was so we teed off the we were the first time out oh man and we teed off at about 7 a.m and there were maybe 50 people around and as we as we kept going the other player in the group was abby wambach and uh the the soccer player and as we, and by the way, Caitlin Jenner holed out of the first hole for an eagle, which was hilarious. Wow. I thought this is going to be, this is going to be an interesting Stick. day. <laughs> and on the second hole, um, I said to Abby, Abby, you can play the forward tees if you like. Cause she'd only been playing for six months. Um, and I am somebody who is 100% behind the quality. And then, and, but she was quite offended by this. 
And I thought she was going to kill me. I, th- I said, no, 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 like, this is not a sexist thing. Like I'm saying, you, if you want to play the forward tees, it'll make life easier for you. And she's like, no, I want to play it back. I'm like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Yeah. And so I was like, no, 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 I'm not saying it because you're a woman. I'm just saying because it, it's easier. You don't hit the ball a long way. You've been playing for six months. Play, play the forward tees, please. She was like, no, play the back. So I was like, okay. So that was, that was embarrassing. So then we continue on and um, we – the 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 more and more people start showing up for this um for this group and there's tmz and there's you know e entertainment i mean we by the time we get all the way around we so the uh, in that program there's two pros so you play nine holes with one and then nine holes with the other on the back nine it was danielle kang and um and so we get to the 18th hole at the ANA, and there are, by now there's probably a thousand people around the green. And Danielle Kang chips in from the edge of the green, the hardest chip shot I think I've ever seen, right along the ridge. I mean, it, it was perfect. Obviously, it went in. And Abby Wambach jumps into Poppy's Pond on the 18th <laughs> Seriously? I, I mean it was just chaos absolutely oh god but we we won this pro-am and so uh i don't usually go to the pro-am parties but the tournament director said to me you should you should Have come to. to the pro-am party because you won so so we go to the pro-am party and caitlin shows up and she doesn't know anybody right and so we're like, Caitlin, come on, we played together. Come sit. So she comes and sits down, and we talk for like two hours about her life and the Kardashians and about what it's like to go through this transition. And I mean, it, it was absolutely fascinating. Wow. And social media and the impact that they have. It was an insane day. And the best part about it was I didn't know this. The winning prize were two business class round trip tickets to Tokyo for each member of the team. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, like, you know, a year later, I went to Tokyo on a little five-day holiday. It was great. <laughs> Business class. Let me get that for you. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that was a, a memorable day. That's Amazing. Great. Amazing. And then, yeah. And there's a famous picture where Abby Wambach jumps onto my back because I made a putt. And I'm, like, carrying her around. It was kind of cool. Yeah. That's hilarious. You know, it's crazy. Golf is one of those interesting sports where you have this FaceTime with people that you would never get in any other sort of – systematic format in the world i mean it's just very cool to have this intimate experience and go through these emotions with people and and really dive into who they are as a character because it all comes out in the golf course all these emotional outbursts but what a what a really cool experience that must have been to to have that time with her and just you know live that experience it was pretty interesting yeah and to be in front of the spotlight and to see what uh, these celebrities go through is kind of interesting how was your golf game that day put to the test i actually putted really well it was a it was a scramble oh and i just my putter just caught fire and i was just making everything love it it. strutting off every green (laughs) i lived here i was i was walking him in i was walking give me give me (laughs) yeah there you go kevin nostal tom it's been awesome to have you on the show tonight thank you so much for donating some time and sharing some stories it's really been a cool uh adventure and journey to go through some of what you've experienced and your passion for golf so thank you very much thanks guys it was a lot of fun thank you and what are your socials so people can get a hold of you at tom at at tom abbott gc on social media and, and in terms of physically uh, i probably won't give that away but on social media <laughs> Just your hotel room tom number abbott would be great GC. yeah yeah i won't give my hotel number away <laughs> 
Once again, Tom, thank you so much for jumping on with us. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank All you. the best this year and good luck with this week. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. See you, everybody, and we'll chat with you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers.